Right then, here we go. Episode 3 of the Tech Health Podcast, presented by Nuffield Health. I'm your host, Saul Sherry. After last episode's focus on VR, we're switching tracks here to another William Gibson-esque theme, the world of 3D printing and scanning. We start by getting to know a company with a mission to do some serious good, and then we delve into some of the more recent 3D printing news, featuring the Paralympics, North Korea, and crisis response. And those are three different stories. So first up, a chat I had with Navid Parvez, the CEO of Andiamo, in their busy Shoreditch office. Now, Andy Amo are an innovative company on a worthy mission fueled by one key now, empathy. Utilising 3D scanning and printing, they're looking to revolutionise the creation of orthotics. Now, that covers any kind of support on the outside of a limb, from back braces to wrist splints and ankle and foot supports. And Andy Amo focus on helping with the creation of these supports for children. But their aims are truly global. They're looking to deliver a medically effective orthosis within one week of a person's need. That's not just in London, that's not just in the UK, that's globally. And the only way to do it globally is through 3D printing and scanning. So, well here's Naveed to explain. Um, so, our son Diamo was born in 2003. Um, he was born with cerebral palsy and was quadriplegic um, because of medical negligence. And you know, it was a, a, a long and painful struggle in a legal sense, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, fighting for, for to, to make that right. But actually the biggest fight we had was, it was not so much his care because you, you kind of work it out. Um, and you get on with it. It was all of the equipment that he needed to have a normal life, and in particular his orthotics. So as an example, without a back brace, he wouldn't be able to breathe properly. He couldn't sit up, he would fold in on himself. That would affect him being able to go to the toilet. Um, He wouldn't be able to be fed properly. Um, It meant he couldn't sit in a wheelchair, which meant he couldn't leave the house, which meant the family couldn't leave the house. So he had all these knock-on effects. Um, and the process of getting something like a back brace is you're, you're literally pinned down for sometimes up to an hour. It's extremely distressing for the child. Um, he, he absolutely hated it. Um, and whilst he couldn't communicate, he knew he was going to an orthotics clinic. Um, and you could just see, see the, the, his demeanour would completely change. Um, and then what happens is you're wrapped in plaster and you're held as still as possible whilst that dries. Um, and you're turned over through the other side. Um, and the problem is, because of all that crying and screaming, um, the, the reality of that plaster is already wrong. Um, and then that gets into a, into a bit of a black hole, and then if you're lucky, it comes back three or four months later. Um, I think we never, ever had a situation, um, he, he lived till he was nine, where it fitted first go. Because he's grown quite a lot. He'd grown. There was there had been mistakes in the measuring process. There'd been mistakes in the manufacturing process, and then they'll get a Dremel out um, uh, and try and fix it there, or a heat gun, and then they'll put a bit of sheepskin in it to, to, to try and and he would get sores and it would pinch him. Um, he would. It's this awful uh, thick 
hard plastic with this awful um, sort of polystyrene type foam on the inside. So imagine that being against your body for mm. 18 hours a day. Um, he would overheat in the summer. He would get ridiculously cold in the winter. Um, it was, however, without it, his quality of life was even worse. So, then it wasn't a better choice. So sure. he had to put up with it. Um, and it, when he had it on, we were able to feed him. He was, I think what, the thing, the biggest difference was he was, he suddenly had, what you don't realise when you have these types of disabilities is the amount of cognitive load just not to fall over. Sure. All of your energy, all of your brain powers don't fall over. And suddenly when you have a back brace, a huge bit of that disappears. And suddenly he was able to look up and look you in the eye. And he wasn't able to do that before. And that's a, for him, it's a big deal. Um, and for us as parents and as yes. families, it was a big deal. So I I was coming into this interview thinking the, the 3D scanning and printing part of your solution it's it's a, a great way to shorten that gap between getting yeah. seen and getting the product in your hands. But from what you just described, the 3D scanning sounds like a much uh, not pleasant, but a, a much more bearable process than the than the plastic cast. So I think this would be clear. There's two things. Um, this journey started assuming because we only saw it as parents. All we saw was a tiny piece of the process. Sure. Um, and so we assumed it was a, a, a measurement problem, plaster, so that we can fix that with scanning. So scanning, uh, you can scan a back in 60 to 120 seconds, so one to two minutes, and your accuracy is 0.4 of a millimeter. Um, when you look at the accuracy of a plaster cast, you're talking about a centimeter or two right. of accuracy. I mean, that's a yeah, world of difference. So that's, that's kind of big thing number one. And then because I think it's being handmade, um, well, one human being can only make one thing at a time. Sure. Um, and if you don't have enough human beings, or you don't have enough money in the system, well, things are going to take a long time to make. Um, whilst with a 3D printer, I can actually print, mm, in a big printer, three, four back braces at a time. So it's, it's a whole different equation. Sure. And I guess it, it allows, like you were saying, with the, you'd have a, a heat gun or someone there basically trying to sculpt something that had already been mm -hmm. made, it allows a more in-depth iterative process. So assuming that you've got a CAD model somewhere where yeah. there's not necessarily a need to rescan again if you've noticed something is slightly out, someone can actually just go into the model and go, okay, we need it there, or does it make more sense to scan from scratch? Um, I, unless something's gone fundamentally wrong, which is, so far, we haven't seen happen. <clears throat> what we, the, the interesting thing we found is um, we'll look at a scan and go, oh god, it's a terrible scan. You know, uh, I, d I don't know how this is going to turn out. And and then you put it on and go, bloody hell, it fits perfectly. Right. And then you kind of realise that um, it, to your eye it looks terrible. And I guess it is in terms of the perfection we want to achieve. But then you compare it to what's going on right now and go, right, it's terrible, but I'm in an accuracy of under a millimeter. Actually, do you know what? That's all right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. We, we can kind of live with that. Yeah. Um, and so the thing we've, the interesting thing we started to find is so far that even with 
quote unquote a bad scan actually were already ahead of the game sure um, and, and that's not to say that the, um, the tweaks aren't needed um, that they, they are needed sometimes um, but the, we're able to do that very quickly the downside of that right now is you can you don't need to rescan but you do need to tweak the CAD model and the, the, the downside of that is you need to reprint the whole thing sure so that's a, that's just the reality of, of, of the technology at the moment but I, I, that will change and so, I mean, the, it's a very exciting space through a number of industries, the, the scanning and printing in 3D. Has there been a, a key piece of that technology that either you discovered or that uh, was released during your process of, of building this company where you thought, this is, this is achievable, that vision that we've had, this is the piece of kit or the iteration that will, that will see us reach that goal? Um, it was kind of the other way around. So, uh, we'd, I'd seen some before Andy Arno started, I'd seen it and, and whilst Diarmo was still alive and we, we, we were looking for other solutions for him. Um, and it's like, there's 3D printing things coming along, but it's not quite there yet. Because when you looked at the projects, it was, they were one-offs and they were, <clears throat> um, what they were doing was printing small 3D printed bits that were attached to a bigger normal plastic bit. Right. <clears throat> and um, the, the the thing that tipped this from a, a kind of idea that was floating around into a, ooh, and that's interesting, is when someone showed a 3D printed uh, replacement part in metal for an old Welsh steam train. Right. That was the like, oh, when did that happen? That's quite a jumping off. Yeah, no, no, it's like yeah, I was sitting in a conference. There was a guy talking about model trains. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm not really a model train fan. I'm gonna go and grab coffee. And then he was like, oh, but it includes lasers and 3D scans. Like, oh, okay, listen. And yeah, and then he kind of showed this this kind of perfect one to one replica. Wow. Um, and that was the and, it, and it's really funny. It's this kind of wonderful uh, 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 <laughs> this kind of tweet that's immortalized. I was sitting in the audience and I just texted out. Something along the lines of, since when can we do this? Why aren't we doing this for medical devices? Does anyone in the NHS know anything about this? Because I had just come, I had been in the NHS for a long time and worked in the NHS on and off. Um, and yeah, I mean, literally, the, 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 that's where the, 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 that light bulb moment. And I sat down next to James Governor, who was running that conference, and said, hey, just had this idea, four hours old. Um, uh, told him a bit about the background and, and I was like you know I'd love to, to talk about this idea in a, in a couple of years and uh, James refused to let me leave uh, until I promised I'd work out a way of uh, creating a prototype in the uh, which I just thought he was utterly nuts um, and he is um, I think well yeah no I'm pretty sure he is um, but it, 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 it started snowball. Um, and a year to the day, we were on stage with two prototypes and a new company. Fantastic. So the focus at the moment on um, wrist, wrist and hand splints? Well, we, we focus, I would say, 90-odd percent on um, lower limb. Uh, okay. lower, uh, so that's uh, from the knee down. Feet and ankles. Feet and ankles. And the, the uh, graphos for the... Uh, yes, yeah, so we, do, we do some... We do graphos, uh, AFOs. Uh, we looked at cathos, but they're a bit too complicated right now. They're not quite there yet. Now, 
I'm just going to interrupt the conversation here. This is Saul back in the studio. So for those of you new to the orthosis world, these uh, terms can be a little overwhelming. But basically, an AFO is an ankle foot orthosis. Uh, a GRAFO, or a GRAFO, is a ground reaction ankle foot orthosis. And a CAFO is a knee ankle foot orthosis. So obviously they're all ankle foot orthoses, but doing different things and, and needing different levels of complexity. Okay, back to the conversation. Um, so those, those are the two main types. Sure. And, uh, I mean, obviously, that stems from your experience with your own son? Yeah, so he needed, well, he needed everything. He needed two AFOs, he needed uh, uh, two wrist splints, he needed a back brace with hip abductors, which at the time, um, I think, they literally had to create one. They hadn't, as the, the surgeon put it, your son doesn't fit a pattern. Right. We're going to have to kind of make this up. Um, so they kind of created a new type of uh, back brace with hip abductors. And I think at the time there were two or three kids in London with something similar. Right. And is the plan to broaden out to so more the, orthotics, more? Uh, yes. So the mission is uh, uh, simply to deliver a, a medically effective external medical device to any person that needs one within one week of their need that's it um when you break that down to what that actually means that's pretty big yeah um, so it's, it's it's every type of orthosis um for every part of the body for every age range obviously a large part of that is your company here scaling up solving problems as as you're moving through and figuring out what that piece is is yeah. there a part of a part of that which is kind of waiting for the right tech to come along so are there limitations on the 3d scanning and printing which stop you from doing another type of, of yeah. solution so going back i i, I told the story was the other way around which was we we went oh my god look this is kind of like it's it's amazing and everywhere you looked everyone told you it was amazing and then we got into it and went oh hang on a minute it's not there are all sorts of limitations here and the the, the challenge we found was Every and I mean everyone was just telling you how amazing it was. No one would tell you the truth. And so what happened is we start to make stuff and do things and just go, this is really hard. Why is it so hard? And we thought maybe it's just us. We haven't we've spoken to the right people. And then it's like, okay, no, no, no. There's 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 a whole bunch of problems here. Reproducibility is really difficult. Um, you know, uh, the 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 ISO standards which are so well understood in traditional manufacturing are only really starting to be well understood in additive manufacturing. Um, the materials are still limited. Um, the 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 printers uh, you can you'll get a, a printer from the same company, from the same printer, and you'll get different results um, for all sorts of different reasons. Mm. Um, the orientation of the thing in the build chamber changes the properties of of the thing. Things would just uh, would break in really bizarre manner. We couldn't work out why, because we'd built, we'd made two of the exact same thing. It's like why? It's really weird. Why is this one broken? This one hasn't. And then we would find out someone slightly changed the angle <clears throat> that it was printed at and didn't tell us. And suddenly the forces had changed. Um, yeah, so there, there, there are loads of limitations. Um, and I think the, the honest reality is 
we've accidentally become world experts because we weren't making prototypes. We were going, we jumped in at the deep end and said, we are going to solve this problem, we are going to solve it globally, and we're going to build a company to solve it. To solve it. And that meant the speed of uh, iteration and knowledge was utterly warp speed. And, mm. we did, and things were, we started, to re, we started to identify all the things that did and didn't work. So I guess, to use an analogy from the publishing world, I remember going to a talk at the, the Guardian building a few years ago where they were talking about uh, digital magazines and tablets were there, publishers were embracing the technology. It was a lot of hype about, oh, you know, you can now get your newspaper on your tablet. But everyone was, was too focused on the the bells and whistles and what it could and couldn't do and weren't really focusing on the content yet that would that would mean that the world would embrace it as a, as a solution. And you guys have kind of jumped straight into the other stream. Everybody wants to talk to you about the possibilities of, of 3D printing and what it will solve, but no one could actually say, and on a day-to-day basis, here's how you do it, here's how you produce an actual product. So you basically had to create that space for yourself. I think, yeah, let's take that analogy a bit further. It's a bit like uh, Amazon and Kindle. Right, they just went screw it. Yeah. We're gonna, we're just gonna like n- n- everyone's obsessed with bits, and not how those bits get tied together. And we, we, we essentially we we hit the realization that we had to become obsessed with everything. And it was the moment you realize that somehow in eighteen months you are the world expert. Somehow, uh, and uh, not be- not in any particular bit, because without, the, of course, there are people who know way more than any of us about the materials or the three D printers, etc. Sure. But how those things actually tie together into an entire chain, there is no one, and I can say that pretty much hand on heart, that understands it the way we do. And that was like, ultimately, as a parent, I don't care that you three D printed it. I don't care you have this wonderful, super amazing, magical machine that does stuff. Has it made my life better? Has it made my child's life better? Can my child do things they couldn't do before? Are they more comfortable? Those are the fundamental questions. All the other stuff doesn't matter. No. And, and this was, I think, the frustration of seeing all of this, the, 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 the media around 3D printing, is that, it, as with a lot of technology, it's too focused on the shiny, shiny, not the the quite nitty gritty awful realities of what's this going to look like in the world when people actually start using it and actually don't care about your shiny shiny tech yeah um and i think that's one of the things some like amazon and the kindle just they just got it and they went right we're going to have to this entire supply chain from getting uh, uh the content to creating the device to creating the thing that gets it onto the device and all of that stuff they, they thought it through and that's why they're leading it's a very similar thing for us so you're I mean you're obviously your mind is just in in the tech like you're saying you, you have to be fascinated by each individual yep. part that's coming along I imagine you uh, go to a lot of trade shows read a lot of a lot of uh, 3D uh, news tech developments is there something yep. that's 
on the horizon a, a new um, whether it's a, a new resolution that's going to be available or, or a new additive process that's, that's coming that you're particularly excited about for the company? So I think there are a couple of things. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing building a company. So, ba- so we have to build a company. So there are a whole bunch of technology curves um, around cost and speed and availability. And th- let's be really clear, scanning and printing and materials, we are at the beginning of, of, uh, of that curve. They're all going to intersect at some point in the next three to five years where it just all makes sense, right? But we're not there yet. Sure. So, on the scanning side, you know, we have gone from um, um, MRIs to £50,000 scanners to £15,000 scanners to £500 scanners to, oh, okay, well, my mobile phone is all, not quite, but almost good enough. So that's really interesting. I, I, I think... Um, with uh, the, the probably one or two generations of iPad away, we're going to be looking at 3D scanners just normal um, in, in consumer devices. Sure. So that with a resolution that makes them useful in a, in a clinical medical context. So that's big thing number one. So we're going to be talking about, you know, uh, uh, we use a £15,000 scanner right now, and we're going to talk about that level of resolution at the two to five hundred pound mark in two to three years that's big huge structure number one the on the 3d printing stroke additive manufacturing side um there are still lots of different the 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 main processes out there um so uh, selective laser sintering which is what we use Mm -hmm. because that's by far uh, the most robust way of making consumer products um we're going to see more materials start to enter into that because really only two materials plastics wise nylon 12 which is very common nylon 11 which is less so mm-hmm. um, and we're going to start to see it's actually quite boring but it's just reproducibility it's quality it's the um, I know when I print this I'm going to get this out the other end and actually we don't really know that right now um, we're going to see a lot more around uh, FDM um, getting better with better materials. I think from a cost perspective, I mean, we've done the numbers. You know, you, when you start talking about being able to produce orthotics that are 20, 30 quid, I mean, that changes the game completely. Sure. Um, and, and, and you're, you're, you're talking about similar levels of quality and uh, strength and material properties to SLS. You know, that looks like it's coming down the line. And then there's some incredible work around resins. Um, right now, resins really aren't great, but uh, the speed of, of, of uh, uh, resins, uh, the ability to print that quickly um, will make a big difference. And also, be- because it's a, a chemical bath, your ability to do some really weird and wonderful things with that material that looks like it's going to be very, very exciting. And then the final bit, again, it's the boring stuff. It's like, it's a new supply chain. It's a new, new logistics chain, and and there are that that doesn't really exist yet. Sure. Um, and it's going to be uh, this whole bunch of stuff that's going to come to make that possible. Um, and when those things come together, that's when the whole conversation about three D printing being um, some sort of magical it will just disappear 
th- that's the point we're waiting for. It's just when it's just, oh, it just works, it's normal. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, the, going back to the, f- the first bit in that that you were excited about, the, the kind of uh, commercial, not commercialization, but, um, you know, me as a, as yeah. a non-expert having this 3D scanner in an iPad, I guess that also plugs into your the bigger aim, sort of the, the big statement that sits on your website, which is this is going to be global. Yeah. So as soon as it's it's that um, that well widespread, you can have a kid in in Brazil who who needs some solution yeah. getting scanned with a with a consumer device. Yes. Um, so that I mean that that's that part of it. Are, are you imagining? that future state that world where the 3d printing which we've already discussed being kind of hit and miss at the moment you know it's that reproducibility we we printed it once perfectly the next time we go to do it it's it's a, seems to be a different thing altogether would that be printed centrally so you've got a center of excellence and then posted out globally or are you imagining it being printed outside where where necessary when that technology becomes becomes so proficient long term I, I think it most likely will be local. Um, I would say that world is probably seven to ten years away, not from a technical perspective, but from a regulatory and political perspective. I I, I think some of the incredible work done by people like Enable is is absolutely wonderful. However. I, 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 this is a personal belief, and, it's a, and, and, and therefore, in terms of what Andy Armo does, we are, you can cause harm. Sure. Right? And, and harm happens, uh, it, um, it can be caused by <clears throat> um, creating the wrong device uh, or, or with the wrong properties, etc. And we, 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 we could be going a lot faster if we wanted to, um, if we, but we, we need to keep that clinical input. And the biggest blockage, ultimately, in the world is clinical uh, training in terms of new clinicians coming on board stagnated against population growth about 20 years ago. Right. Ultimately... How can you help a clinician see more people and raise the, the level of quality and reduce the cost? Until those questions are answered, that's the thing that will stop the global spread. Now, the flip side of that is, is that going to stop families from doing it themselves? And the reality is the answer is no. And that's being shown right now. And so the other thing we can't do, and, and this is the other side of the argument, is pretend it's not happening. So how can you help those families to, to do something that they're just going to do anyway? Sure. Um, and how can you, I don't want to use the word protect, that's not the right word, but it's almost kind of like, it's very pragmatic that if we can reduce the number of errors at the very least and, and the likelihood of something failing, um, we should do that. Um, now, 
for a legal perspective, that gets really complicated. Mm. And I think those are the questions that are gonna that will probably dictate how how fast or slow adoption actually is. In in you know, um, as an example, we were actually contacted when we first started by a charity that was working in the favelas of Brazil. Wow. And they said, we don't have enough clinicians. We have decided that we're going to put 3D printers in the favela and we're going to teach the mums how to be their own orthotist. Wow. And it was like, well, okay. I mean, I mean, I, I, that, I, I, and so that, I, now I, I, I don't know how that project has gone, but that is an example of a very kind of like, look, parents are just going to crack on with it. Yeah. Can we um, empower them and augment their knowledge to 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 uh, allow them to do something because um, you're always in that situation of is it better to do something than nothing and sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no and, it, and it's all yeah that's where it gets a bit grey and complicated sure I mean uh, at the top of the chat you mentioned big data playing a role in this yeah. is there a is there a space for great swathes of data and, and, a, and a layer of machine learning on the top to, to fill in that clinician role and, and spot where problems might occur? Uh, well, I think the short answer is it's already happening. Um, uh, I think probably IBM Watson is the, the most uh, well-known version of that. Um, again, I think the whole AI thing, machine learning, is got a very bright future. The very boring thing no one talks about is, is how awful and dirty the data is. Um, these these uh, these AIs at the moment can only they will take what you've given them at face value. They can't make a uh, a judgment on on the quality of the data at the moment. Sure, that will change. Um, I, again, I I I've been using the word augment a lot recently, which is we don't have enough clinicians. We're probably never going to have enough clinicians now. It's just too late. And so we have to work out ways of more than being able to treat more people. And that then means they simply can't see physically those people. So they're going to have to do that remotely. Right. And so do you move into a situation where, um, from a clinical service point of view, there is an AI that's triaging, perhaps? Um, definitely in terms of medical device design, um, you know, if you look at things like heart stents, custom heart stents uh, by people like um, Medtronic, mm -hmm. you know they've they've worked out they can make a custom heart stent um, that passes a, a finite element analysis process that then means it gets automatic FDA approval. Right. Um, and that's and that then means we're they're able to turn out you know you need, when you need a heart stent you need it now. And you can't wait six months for yeah. <laughs> an yeah. FDA approval. So, and that's where the machine learning, uh, AI type of things will, will start to solve pieces of the problem from a, in a physical uh, device sense. And we're going to have to work out new ways of clinicians interacting with the people they need to treat. And then the final bit is, and this is probably the most painful bit, is the clinicians are going to have to learn to let go. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's been more than enough research done about clinicians are, are amazing at certain things, but they're not amazing at everything. And, and they shouldn't 
there are certain decisions they shouldn't make based on their gut instinct. And there are some decisions that they should do. Mm-hmm. And those two need to start being separated out. Okay. Um, again, that's a, a much longer, messier thing to do. It's going gonna, it's gonna to involve a lot of uh, egos. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, a, 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 an example of that would be the US Navy around um, heart attacks on nuclear submarines. And they built an algorithm because once that, they can't, that, that submarine is underwater for six months. Mm-hmm. So to surface and have an evac, they didn't want, they, they needed a, an algorithmic way of deciding whether they needed to service an evac. And they've made that, they've uh, uh, created an algorithm now, and it's an algorithm that decides whether that nuclear submarine surfaces and that person is evac Then they try to apply that in a hospital, and in pilots it worked, but clinicians were always like it's an algorithm it can't possibly be as good as me Um, the evidence doesn't support that there's trust that needs to be earned I guess yeah and then then as a patient would you do you trust a doctor do you trust an algorithm do you trust them together Mm. do you what happens if you have an algorithm and the doctor ignores these are all the really messy stuff that you can have amazing technology, but it's the human bit that that, that stops it from being uh, applied. It's often the case. Or, or, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, that was my uh, brief chat with Navid Parvez of, of Andiamo. Um, obviously a, a fascinating and, and really well-intentioned company looking to use 3D scanning and printing to make lives a bit better. If you want any more information on them, you can go to andiamo.io. That's A-N-D-I-A-M-O. I'm joined on the line now by Chris Brunner, Senior Content Producer at Nuffield Health, and we're going to be looking into some of the more recent um, 3D printing and scanning news. Hi, Chris. Hi, Saul. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's always a chore. So what's in the news this week, Chris? Well, Saul, there's actually quite a lot in the news related to what you've been talking about, 3D printing. And uh, there's actually a story on uh, 3dprintingindustry.com that actually involves a, a, a large sporting event that's going on right now in a South American country, um, namely uh, the next one to come up, which is the Paralympic event. So where the Paralympians start to compete in Rio de Janeiro, uh, they often rely on prostheses to get them through uh, their event. Um, in the past, well, and still currently, they're mostly using uh, traditionally manufactured um, prostheses. But there's one athlete in particular who's turned to 3D printing. Um, and it's believed to be the first 3D printed, fully 3D printed uh, prosthesis to be used at the Paralympic Games. Um, so Denise Schindler, she's a Paralympian cyclist uh, from Germany, and she actually won a silver medal back in 2012 with a uh, traditionally manufactured prosthesis that's specially designed to use on her road bike. But in these games, in the upcoming Paralympic Games, she's going to be the first athlete to use a fully 3D printed uh, prosthesis, which really is a game changer. Yeah, it's uh, just reading the article myself, it's made from uh, polycarbonate, which is obviously very strong and tough. Um, I'm not sure of, of the technology that sits behind polycarbonate printers and how widespread that is, but obviously uh, with this ability to, to print, it, the idea behind 3D printing is that it will democratize a lot of the creation so uh, I'm guessing we could see this in, in um, 
a lot of third world countries where athletes so far have a barrier to compete, having uh, you know a, a 3D scanned and printed uh, orthotic replacement allowing them to take part in the games. That's right. I mean, it, it does democratize it, like you say, because at the moment there there's probably more of a a gap between the different kinds of prostheses that um, or prostheses that uh, athletes are able to acquire. So some of the more economically well-off countries will be able to supply their athletes with the latest and greatest uh, prostheses um, and and backup prostheses as well in case they break. But there are then other uh, athletes and competitors who who won't have access to that. So the 3D printing really cheapens the process, it quickens the process, and it allows you to redesign on a really uh, ad, in a really agile way. Um, so you can test uh, different uh, models of the prosthesis, and then um, if it doesn't work, you can you can put it back into the, the printer with a different, uh, slightly amended design, and that's not going to cost the earth. And on a slightly different note, I've, uh, there's an article in the, the Guardian this week about North Korea um, using 3D printing to assist in cosmetic surgery and dentistry. Indeed, and, and here's a very good example of that uh, democratization of the technology. Uh, North Korea is not a, um, well, it's not known in the Western world for being a, a center of innovation, but um, it certainly seems to be, from what we hear from uh, KCTV, which is the state broadcaster, doctors were shown um, working on a, a jaw, a, a 3D printed human jaw to be used in cosmetic surgery. Um, and as far as we know, that's, a, that's fairly innovative and, and new technology, um, especially for North Korea to be developing and using. Um, it's hard to know exactly what's coming out of North Korea because the, the lines of communication are, are pretty... Uh, tenuous, but this is what we've seen. Whether or not it's exactly true or not is, uh, or fully true, is um, is another matter. Yeah, I mean, um, the article goes on to say that, that, that doctors in the Netherlands uh, carried out a transplant with a three D printed skull two years ago. Uh, my, my initial thought was, and especially from having uh, visited Navid and looking at some of the models that they've got, are these uh, plasticky. Um, quite thin lightweight obviously for the for the reasons that Naveed needs them for but then of course you can you can 3d print in stainless steel and 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 ceramics and ceramics we already know have a, a huge role to play in in hip replacements so it's not it's not impossible we know that, that the dutch have done something with it and that the materials are there but the uh the state broadcaster in in north korea is the same state broadcaster that uh, claimed that kim jong-un climbed a, an active volcano and that that uh, the country's scientists had created a waterproof liquid, so I guess there's uh, we'll need to see a bit more proof before we before we all start shipping ourselves out to North Korea for cheap dentist work. True, true, and uh, what it really lets us know as well is that uh, countries that have so North Korea has been hit by sanctions in, in so many different areas of its economy, and one of those is the health system. So they're finding it really, really difficult, or you can imagine they're finding it really, really difficult to get access and the funds and everything else to to get the best doctors, to have the, the best technology and to, to create those prostheses, get the machines that are needed from uh, the diagnostic machines, etc. So this is a good example of how that 3D printing can really cheapen and quicken processes in order to, to bring, uh, I guess, good healthcare to, to almost anywhere. And speaking of bringing this technology to all regions of the world, um, it's also bringing 
this 3D technology is also being brought and being used in areas of conflict, thanks to uh, Médecins Sans Frontières or uh, Doctors Without Borders. Um, and this is a story that was picked up from SciDev.net. Yeah, so it's, uh, they're basically moving on from using 2D diagrams to, to get their, their hospitals in, in crisis and war zones uh, created and moving on to um, employing 3D printed models to help that process. Yeah, and what, what that really does is enables people who aren't necessarily uh, architectural or engineering uh, minded to have a stake in, in the design of the hospital. So obviously it's very important that the medical teams who are being deployed here rapidly um, need to know that it's going to work for the purposes in that particular conflict zone or, or wherever they happen to be deploying the hospital. So creating a 3D um, sculpture, if you will, or model of the um, of the hospitals that they are proposing to build, um, really allows the medical teams to have a stake in that and to to influence the design. Yeah, and there's a there's a, a virtual reality element to this as well, which I I find really interesting, especially given our conversation in the last podcast with Applied VR uh, on use of virtual reality and providing pain relief. Here, virtual reality can take those 3D models and uh, and give staff who will be obviously they need to hit the ground running uh, when they arrive in these in these crisis response uh, situations. So they get a chance to navigate the hospital in in a in a virtual space. So when they when they hit the actual physical place, they'll know a bit more about the environment they're in and be able to acclimatize. Exactly. It's not like you get an orientation uh, day at the hospital. I'm sure when you're on the, when you're in those kinds of situations. No, that's true. I, I can't imagine new staff get taken out for a, a getting to know you session at, at Pizza Express in these in these situations. So our last story of the day comes from uh, 3dprint.com and it moves us away from the, the clinical and hospital-based space into, moves us back into the elite athletics space. <clears throat> An engineering student from California Polytechnic called Alexandra Klein who came up with a new idea for an old problem runners have. So uh, running isn't just a matter of... Uh, the gun going off and you running as fast as you can until the finish line there's obviously a great degree of planning and pacing that goes into making sure that your your energy is dispersed in the right way for the run and people in the past have taken different approaches to this so either looking at other runners and, and pacing against them or, or using splits but obviously in a, in a hundred meter or a 200 meter uh, using a, a, a split timer on a on a stopwatch isn't really going to give you the results you're after. So she decided to take a, a, a digital approach to solving this problem. And so basically, the idea is that there's a strip of lights that go around the track or, or down the track, however however far you're running, to determine your pace. Uh, it will be uh, linked up to Bluetooth on a smartphone app, allowing the trainer to, to set speed and distance and, and even light colour so that you can uh, have multiple runners going at a time. So the reason we're talking about this today is the manufacturing process that they've, they've decided to go for in its production. Yeah, so again, 3D printing has kind of come to the rescue and, and made this an affordable uh, and easily deliverable uh, kind of solution. Um, so 
uh, Alexandra Klein, the de designer, engineering student who came up with the idea, she approached um, this digital design company, uh, Viget, to deliver it. And obviously the lights are a massive component of that. That's how it works. But how do you get it stuck to the track and, and laid around in a, in a way that's not going to cost you the earth? And again, that's where 3D printing comes in. So there's a set of components that uh, basically just clips that then get screwed into the ground um, and make this a a permanent structure around an athletic track or a semi-permanent structure around an athletic track. Um, and it's just an, another great example of where digital technology and 3D printing have linked up. So the, uh, the 3D printed runner pacing tool I've got installed in the studio tells me that uh, we're out of time for this podcast, Chris. Thanks very much for, for coming on and, and filling me in on the news. No problem. Thanks for having me, Saul. That's it. Thanks for listening to episode 3 of the Tech Health Podcast presented by Nuffield Health. I have been and will continue to be Saul Sherry. I want to thank everyone for listening and also thank Naveed from Andiamo and Chris from Nuffield Health. Now, if you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe. We are available on iTunes and Pocket Casts and pretty much everywhere you would imagine you would find us. And uh, give us a rating and we will be back next month. <laughs>